The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Did your brother ever experiment with animals? Never. Or insects? Insects? <laughs> now that would be funny if... No, Helene and Andre believed in the sacredness of life. They wouldn't harm anything. Not even a fly. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January the 4th, 2024. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Boy, do I have a very weird experience to share with you today. So welcome to 2024, and I hope and trust that everyone had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Given all of the dire predictions and expectations for this new year, you might find our opening topic of the year to be a bit offbeat, and perhaps even somewhat trivial. And when I say trivial, I mean trivial. But what better way to illustrate a profound philosophical revelation than by focusing on something virtually no one would have any preconceived notions or prejudices about? Because whenever we talk about ultimate truths and about reality, people's attention generally focuses back on their own preconceived opinions and ideas about both. Now this past summer, thanks to a common housefly, I had my own preconceived opinions shaken a bit. And unlike the character described in our show opener today who wouldn't even hurt a fly, I have to confess I'm not so predisposed. When I see a fly in my living quarters, my first inclination is to swat it. That is, until I had a very unusual and unique experience with one particular housefly, which I had every intention of swatting until something quite remarkable happened which led me to try an experiment with this particular housefly. In fact, the results of my experiment actually caused me to question some basic philosophical principles I had always accepted as the truth. And I would go so far as to say that my very understanding of truth itself was called into question. I actually gave a name to this particular fly, My Fly. And that's why the title and theme of our show today asks the question, is my fly open for discussion? Because that discussion begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ, Channel 292, and WTWW Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, this past summer, towards the end of August, a housefly got into my apartment that was driving me crazy. It was constantly buzzing around my head and in any room I was occupying. So I decided to go on a mission and become my own personal SWAT team out to put an end to this constant nuisance. I kept the fly swatter in the cupboard under my kitchen sink, and sure enough, every time I would pull that swatter out 
and just lay it on the counter, the fly would disappear. It was nowhere to be seen. But whenever I put the fly swatter away, it came back and started pestering me. And this went on like for about a week. Finally, one day, I just got to the point where I grabbed the fly swatter without any preparation and started chasing the fly around my apartment. But it always kept out of my reach until one day it perched itself in a very strategic position where I couldn't get at it with a swatter or anything else without damaging something. So in utter frustration, I finally put the fly swatter away and I jokingly said out loud, Okay, you win. You can come out now. And lo and behold... The fly actually descended from its perch on top of my kitchen cupboards and began walking down the front of the cupboard into my plain sight, but still to the far edge of the cupboard. Oh, you can come out further if you want, I said to the fly. And lo and behold, the fly walked right into the center of the cupboard door, where, with a little luck, I could have easily swatted it with my hand. But instead of trying to swat it, I don't know why, but something piqued my curiosity, and I approached it very slowly with my left hand. And despite my getting very close, it stayed right where it was, making no attempt to fly away. Huh. So I withdrew my hand, and after a few seconds, the fly f flew right into the center of my kitchen counter and landed on the wall above the kitchen sink and under a bright neon light. So just for the fun of it, I began once again approaching the fly with the index finger of my left hand, and to my utter amazement and disbelief, and this is absolutely true, the fly let me pat it on the head, to which I reacted out loud, no effing way. I pulled my hand away and the fly just stayed there. Now this is just the beginning of the story, but I wouldn't blame you if you thought I was losing my mind because that very thought occurred to me once or twice as well. For starters, following our introduction to each other, this fly started to exhibit some very weird behavior totally unlike its behavior when I was still trying to swat it. And this was behavior that stretched over, I would say, a couple of weeks. For example, I was standing at the stove one day, and then looking down towards the floor, there is the fly, flying in a constant circular orbit, round and round, just about 10 inches above the floor. And weirder still, the fly started hanging around more, but never really bothered me, or even went near any of the food I might be preparing, or anything like that. And one of my weirdest reactions was that I could no longer consider swatting or killing the fly. I don't know why. So I considered capturing it in a container and then letting it free outside. And sure enough, I saw the fly on my kitchen window one day and managed to trap it there under a plastic container. And when I went to slip a cardboard between the glass and the container so I could take it outside, the fly managed to escape and resumed its habitat in my apartment. And then there was a really weird encounter. I'm sitting on the throne of my bathroom one day, and there on the floor in front of me is the fly looking up at me. And when I got up to wash my hands in front of the sink, the fly perched itself on the counter between the sink and bathroom mirror, sitting there, kind of staring at me. And then it did something really weird. It flew away from its perch, performed one orbit around me standing there, and then went out the bathroom door flying to the left towards my bedroom. So I looked out to see where it went, and to my surprise, it only landed on my carpeted hall floor about two or three feet away. 
So I stepped out to see what could possibly have attracted it to the floor when it took off, and instead of going into my bedroom, it made a right turn into my study and landed on the floor of my study right in front of the office chair that I sit in when I'm working there. And as I approached the chair, it then just flew away into some other room in my apartment. Now I know all the sounds a little weird and circumstantial, but this story is far from over. On Friday, September 1st, I saw my fly sitting on the side of my fridge, no doubt waiting to get a taste of the spilled tea and sugar on the kitchen counter beside it. Amazingly, the fly stayed there long enough for me to go and grab my camera from my study and then return to attempt to approach it again as I described in the past. Now this video has been posted to our site in conjunction with this broadcast's blog post and it runs for about four and a half minutes so you'll be able to see it for yourself, what I am about to describe for those unable to access the video. When you see what the fly allows me to do, you might be led to assume the fly might be injured in some way and cannot fly away. But the beauty of this video is that by the end of it, due to my moving my camera too quickly while trying to keep the autofocus in focus, it's very clear that this is a perfectly healthy fly capable of flight and it has been allowing me to approach it in this manner ever since that first encounter when I put the fly swatter away. I really can't explain it. And when you look at the video, what you will see is that at about the 20 second mark, my finger makes first contact with the fly, and it pulls away, but only by a few steps. Then I approach again with my finger, and at about the 34 second mark, I'm actually touching the fly's wings, and it just lets me. Even when I pull my finger away, it continues walking on the counter, clearly undisturbed by my presence. In fact, at about the 55 second mark, the fly turns around to approach me again. But I move a bit too fast in my attempt to keep my camera focused, and the fly flies about 10 inches away and lands back on the counter. And once again, you see my finger approach the fly, which makes no attempt to fly away, even as I'm touching one of its legs and holding it down to prevent the fly from moving. And that happens at about the 1 minute 32 second mark. And then, even after releasing its leg, the fly still does not attempt to fly away, until my finger practically pushes it into a jar sitting on the counter. After this, the fly is apparently a bit more wary of my presence, possibly because I'm moving too fast, but we make contact again at the three minute mark. Then by the four minute and four second mark, the fly makes a dramatic flight from one side of my kitchen to the other, where it perches itself right in the center of a circular metal ring holding a bottle opener with the name METS on it. And then, after remaining perched there for about 30 seconds, it flies away and off camera, never again to be seen or encountered by me. That last visual, by the way, is the source of the photo that accompanies this week's blog posting. Now the four minute video we posted is actually a compilation of four separate recordings I took of the fly. But between the first and second recordings I had the most incredible encounter. Even more incredible than when I was able to touch its head. Regrettably, I couldn't capture it on video because had I done so, it would have been the viral insect money shot video of all time, let me tell you. The fly was perched on top of the chrome spout of my kitchen sink. Once again, it was completely aware of my close presence and was clearly aware of my finger, this time approaching it from underneath the spout. 
My finger came into direct contact with one of its legs, and believe it or not, it allowed me to raise and lower that individual leg two or three times without making a move, sort of like doing push-ups. I couldn't freaking believe it. Then shortly thereafter, when I was in my study, testing the first video that I took on my Windows 10 computer, I looked to the right of the screen, and there, perched on the bookshelf beside the computer, was the fly looking at the video on which it appeared. Is that creepy or what? When I sent a copy of the original video to Robert Vaughn, he replied quite sarcastically with, Kill it! Kill it now while you still can! <laughs> and along with that response, he sent me two or three links to other videos that people had made illustrating some unusual behavior with flies. One featured a guy who had tied a piece of thread around a fly like a lasso and could control it in flight, while another video featured a woman able to persuade a fly to walk around on her blouse. I replied to Robert that my fly exhibited entirely different behavior from the kind depicted in the other videos, and thus was born the name My Fly. But I learned later that the fellow who got a thread tied to a fly did it by putting the fly in his fridge until it couldn't move anymore, and then tied the thread to the fly. And since then, I even learned of another similar thread-flying-fly incident where the fly in question was just thrown against a wall or hard surface, knocking it temporarily unconscious while the thread was tied to its body. But at no time in my encounters with my fly did I ever use coercion or force it into any situation or circumstance from which it couldn't escape. Unlike those other flies, I reasoned, my fly acted of its own free will. And suddenly I found myself confronted with a philosophical dilemma. Does a fly have free will? Was my fly able to exercise some level of free will while the other flies couldn't? I mean, relative to the other flies I saw depicted in the videos, my fly cooperated voluntarily with everything I did, and then even acted on its own accord in several instances. But do those terms even have any relevance when we talk about insects or animals? I ask this question not because I believe even for a moment that a fly does have free will, but because there are many human beings who would say the same thing about people. That what we possess in this regard is fundamentally no different from the behavior of other animals and species. Every species simply acts in accordance with its nature, and to that extent our actions are deterministic. Hence, Free will is bit an illusion, and we've been hearing a lot of that argument made lately, especially from certain globalists. Now, I got an interesting text from Paul McKeever, who, after I told him about my experience with the fly, wrote back, This story reminded me of yours, and I quote, During a performance in Milan, Italy on July 5, 1973, as Led Zeppelin was playing their classic song, Stairway to Heaven, a white dove flew into the venue and landed on Robert Plant's outstretched hand. Plant, known for his charismatic stage presence and connection with nature, embraced the dove and held it gently, seemingly in awe of the unexpected visitor. The crowd erupted in applause, captivated by the remarkable sight, end quote but even more sinister. <laughs> Paul suggested, are you really sure you're dealing with a fly? You know, it could be some kind of nanotechnology. And I found that suggestion rather flattering in a way that I should be considered significant or important enough to be surveilled by that kind of nanotechnology. 
but after taking a close look at the fly, I was pretty sure it was a real fly, and therefore no threat. Until, at least, someone sent me a link to the following audio bite featuring Greg Reese on September 5th of 2023. In 2017, Dr. James Giordano gave a lecture on the latest government technologies to target individuals, such as neuroweapons to control brain function and modify memories. He says they can already control insects and use them to deliver bioweapons. I infiltrate that bug's nervous system and I control the way it moves. By controlling the way it moves, I control the way it goes. I control the wings pattern. I control where it hovers, where it flies, where it articulates. And what I can also do is I can then couple this to a very, very small scale set of either biosensors or cameras. And what I basically have here is a biodrone. I can go one step further on. I can also impregnate that individual, that individual organism, with a very small-scale weaponizable delivery mode. In other words, if I'm using a very, very small-scale bioweapon, such as a very potent organotoxin, or the delivery of a very small level of microbes that we know can either replicate and infect, or is genetically modified to have a very, very high morbidity effect, I can then utilize this not only as a reconnaissance drone, but also as an infiltrative weaponizable drone that can then deliver some payload Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Why are they arresting him? what I saw. He took a knife and followed her into the bedroom. I looked in the bedroom. Everything was fine. No blood, no body, I swear. Did you look under the bed? In the closet? Castle, the guy was relaxed and fully cooperative. He let us poke around without a warrant. So he probably hit the body. If he was completely calm, he could be a psychopath. What did he say about the girl? He admitted they had a fight, they broke up, and she left. Not possible. I would have seen her. So you were watching the whole time? I... Well, not the entire time. I so... Had to... She could have left and you didn't see. It's possible, but because he called her. Handed me the phone. I spoke to her. She confirmed his story. She was in the car on her way to her mom's house in Philadelphia. All right. Thanks, guys. Not crazy. No, but you do have a vivid imagination and you've been stuck inside for two weeks. What were you doing looking out the window anyway? I was bored. So you saw what you wanted to see? Kind of begs a question, doesn't it? In telling my story about my fly, did I just see what I wanted to see? Even though every part of my story actually happened as I described it, and was therefore absolutely true in that it corresponded to events that took place in reality, here's the big question. Was any of it real? And remarkably, I find myself having to answer that question with a resounding no. Nothing I told you about my fly was real, although every word of it was true. But wait a minute, isn't the test of truth that which corresponds to reality? So how can I explain this apparent paradox, or worse, this contradiction? For example, when I first jokingly invited my fly to come down from its perch, you know, when I said, okay, you win, you can come down now. The fact that I asked that question, and that the fly descended from its perch, 
was absolutely true. That happened. But it couldn't have been real. I mean, did I actually believe that my fly came down from its perch because of my invitation? I seriously doubt it. It probably would have done exactly what it did, even if I hadn't said a word. But I haven't got any way of objectively proving that one way or the other. But that's how I experienced that event. In fact, throughout this whole experience, I doubt if the fly was even aware of my presence other than being some kind of object in the room. In fact, none of the behaviors I've described about my fly were unnatural, quote-unquote, or beyond the range of any behavior of any fly. I mean, if you looked at it in isolation. So the story I told you about my encounter with my fly was really about my own subjective experience with the fly, creating an impression that this fly even had any knowledge or interest in me personally. And by asking that question, I find myself for the first time trying to distinguish what is real from what corresponds to reality and that which we might otherwise call the truth. Consider the implications of this relative to any narrative told about anything. And for human beings, what is the greater need? Is it truth or is it knowledge of what is real? Or should humanity's ultimate objective be to reconcile the two? It seems to me that for humans to survive, knowing what is true is more important than knowing what is real. That might sound contradictory, But I see truth as being more about purpose and morality and meaning, which in turn relate to human action. Simple knowledge of the real world is not always useful, especially if that knowledge is something that could or should never be acted upon, which is exactly what happened in the very haunting and disturbing 1958 movie, The Fly, starring Vincent Price, from which our opener and the following audio bite were taken. Uncle? Yes, Philippe? Do flies live a long time? I don't know. Why? Because I saw that fly Mummy was looking for again. Oh, I didn't know your mother was looking for one. Oh, yes, she was. It's grown quite a lot. But I recognized it all right. Mmm, this is good. How did you recognize it, Philippe? Its head is white instead of black, and it has a funny sort of leg. It was on your desk this morning. Oh, I I didn't notice it. When did you first see that fly, Philippe? The day Daddy went away. I had caught it, but Mummy made me let it go. And then later, she wanted me to find it again. She changed her mind. You know how women are.
people on the left side of the crowd don't understand what's happening. So a fly landed on my shoulder like a fucking falcon. And he's just chilling there like he's, like he's my fly. You know what I mean? I feel like a Somalian. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And that was comedian Andrew Schultz from a very spontaneous stand-up routine initiated by the unexpected appearance of yet another common housefly back on April 28, 2018. And could you believe it? He called his fly, my fly. Be sure to stick around till the end of today's show because you just have to hear how his audience reacted when he decided to become the SWAT team. You'd think you were in a Roman Colosseum. What I sensed in his audience were some very personal and emotional reactions to this lowly housefly, indicating a level of concern for that fly that usually exceeds most concerns exhibited for the plight of human beings. In fact, I was forced to delete a few expletives expressed by some audience members, and I cannot recall any audiences out of the thousands of audio bites we've featured on this show over the years coming anywhere near to the reaction level expressed by his audience to this simple housefly. Apparently, the death of a single fly is a tragedy, the deaths of millions, a mere statistic. In this case, it may seem that this principle transcends humanity, but I don't think that's what we're witnessing. To a lot of the people in that audience, that fly was a person in the context of the event. Now this brings in a factor about human storytelling and communication that I haven't yet explored to the degree it might deserve. And that is the process of anthropomorphizing, or in other words, the process of ascribing human characteristics to things not human. According to Wikipedia, quote, Anthropomorphism is the attribution of human traits, emotions, or intentions to non-human entities. It is considered to be an innate tendency of human psychology. Personification is the related attribution of human form and characteristics to abstract concepts such as nations, emotions, and natural forces such as seasons and the weather. Both have ancient roots as storytelling and artistic devices, and most cultures have traditional fables with anthropomorphized animals as characters. People have also routinely attributed human emotions and behavioral traits to wild as well as domesticated animals. In religion and in mythology, anthropomorphism is the perception of a divine being or beings in human form or the recognition of human qualities in these beings. Ancient mythologies frequently represented the divine as deities with human forms and qualities. They resemble human beings not only in appearance and personality, they exhibited many human behaviors that were used to explain natural phenomenon, creation, and historical events. The deities fell in love, married, had children, fought battles, wielded weapons, and rode horses and chariots. They feasted on special foods and sometimes required sacrifices of food, beverage, and sacred objects to be made by human beings. Some anthropomorphic deities represented specific human concepts, such as love, war, fertility, beauty, or the seasons. Anthropomorphic deities exhibited human qualities such as beauty, 
wisdom, and power, and sometimes human weaknesses such as greed, hatred, jealousy, and uncontrollable anger. Greek deities such as Zeus and Apollo often were depicted in human form exhibiting both commendable and despicable human traits. Anthropomorphism, in this case, is, more specifically, anthropotheism. From the perspective of adherence to religions in which humans were created in the form of the divine, the phenomenon may be called theomorphism, or the giving of divine qualities to humans. Anthropomorphism has cropped up as a Christian heresy, particularly prominently with Audians in the 3rd century Syria, but also in the 4th century Egypt and the 10th century in Italy. This often was based on a literal interpretation of Genesis. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Well, you can't be saying something like that today. Some religions, scholars, and philosophers objected to anthropomorphic deities. The earliest known criticism was that of the Greek philosopher Xenophanes, who observed that people model their gods after themselves. He argued against the conception of deities as fundamentally anthropomorphic. Xenophanes said that the greatest god resembles man neither in form nor in mind. Both Judaism and Islam reject an anthropomorphic deity, believing that God is beyond human comprehension. Judaism's rejection of an anthropomorphic deity began with the prophets, who explicitly rejected any likeness of God to humans. Their rejection grew further after the Islamic Golden Age in the 10th century. In secular thought, one of the most notable criticisms began in 1600 with Francis Bacon, who argued against Aristotle's teleology, which declared that everything behaves as it does in order to achieve some end, in order to fulfill itself. Bacon pointed out that achieving ends is a human activity, and to attribute it to nature misconstrues it as human-like, end quote. Well, my own bottom line on this subject is this. I don't think it is at all possible for human beings to relate to existence or to the universe without anthropomorphizing that relationship. It's the only way we can arrive at that which we call the truth, since truth only has relevance to human beings, a truth we shall explore a little later in the show today. So when it came to the story of my fly, I had to tell it from the point of view of my own anthropomorphized experience of the event. And while the facts I related were all true and accurate, my narrative was, of course, always open to question. And I sure have a lot of questions. In a way, I already anthropomorphized this tale even before it transpired. Chasing and talking to the fly before it even appeared for the first time. How I quote-unquote coaxed it out of hiding, which of course, rationally, I did not do. I have to accept that each of the fly's actions were taken independently of anything that I happened to say. But that wasn't how I experienced it. Experiences are always difficult to put into words, owing to the fact that they are experiences, as in they are felt, whether physically or emotionally. And since it is impossible to share these feelings literally, although I understand there are some mad scientists who plan to have us do that, through the internet of all things, <laughs> well, we find ourselves otherwise forced to verbalize them, always bringing us back to the necessity of a sound epistemology based on definitions and concepts that are real, 
that can be applied to a narrative. Many people find it difficult to relate to complex metaphysical and epistemological discussions, but just about everybody can relate to a housefly. And so when my path crossed with that of my fly, I sensed an opportunity to address a philosophical complexity I haven't even quite worked out to my own satisfaction as yet. So how many events in history, in daily life, are subject to this same phenomenon of storytelling? Consider the amount of subjectivity that unavoidably is injected into almost everything we talk about. We've anthropomorphized just about everything, including existence itself, God the Father, Mother Nature. But none of these things should ever be taken as misrepresentations of some truth merely on the basis of anthropomorphizing. We even anthropomorphize people, as redundant as that might sound, turning them into heroes or villains, which they may or may not be. Biden and Trudeau are Satan themselves, the epitome of evil. And as true as that might be, it would be very difficult to argue that it's real. You see the distinction? Even evil and good are anthropomorphized. Add the letter D to evil and you've got the devil. Remove one of the O's from the word good and you're dealing with God. Fortunately, insects, fish, mammals, birds, and other variant life forms on this planet are immune to evil, a concept that, like good, applies only to those creatures possessing free will, and those creatures are known as human beings. Which brings us back to the nature and necessity of truth and reality, and to the narratives that determine our own understanding of our world and of our role in it. And it may have come to your attention that not everyone appreciates the truth or what is real. And this, of course, is one of the greatest challenges and dangers facing us as we embark on the year 2024. And here, to reflect on that reality, are Adam Carolla and Roseanne Barr from a conversation they had back on September 27th of last year. And you know, they can do things on video and television that it, it isn't even them. You know, we can't trust anything the media tells us is my bottom line there. Anything you see on media has been cut uh you know, censored, made up. I don't believe anything except for the fact that people are dying all the time and they don't even report it. Did COVID get you to this headspace oh, much no. quicker? You were there long I before? There. Yeah, I saw the Matrix at an early age because I was always getting, you know, I, I, uh, I saw the, I saw, um, I don't know how to say this right, but, uh, since I came to Hollywood, I worked with uh, children who were abused and um, owned by pimps, and I always was a fighter in that arena for children's sex lives and children who were controlled by pimps on Hollywood Boulevard that I tried to be very involved in. And so I knew from them the victims, what was really going on behind the scenes and in high up places. So I knew from them what the real deal was. And it was just, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, a system of slavery and people at the top are making the money and the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. How can you dispute that? It's basically that. It is just business as usual. And if the uh, business happens to be very um, 
profitable in selling human bodies and organs, that's where they'll go. That's just how it is. But is it all commerce? Oh, see, I think you and I differ to the extent that I think mainly, I always say stupid or liar. And I, I feel like- I agree. Most, I mean, you can watch CNN for 20 minutes and there'll be 35 stupid or liar moments right. in there. But I believe people are mostly stupid or sort of useful idiots and not really knowing what's going on. But maybe there's a handful of people at the top kind of pulling the strings. Yeah. But I don't think of them as nefarious. I think of them as power hungry and money hungry, which ends up makes makes you do nefarious things. But I don't think it's evil for the sake of evil. I think, I think there's the a, middle is like that. I think people in the middle, they don't, they're kind of unwitting. Yes. You know, they, they want to believe, oh, you know, they want to believe what they believe. But at the very tip top, the owners of the world, like Carlin said, the owners of the world, sorry to tell you, but they are evil. And they, they, they definitely count how many people they need to get rid of. They do it in every war. They do it on purpose. And, you know, they do own everything. The owners of the world are evil. And then how does this trickle down into Hollywood? And then how did Hollywood get so infected with horrible ideas? And how did they all get on the exact same page? That's my, my question is COVID came around and all of Hollywood had the exact same talking points. Yeah, they did. Well, they get them at 4 a.m. They get the 4 a.m. talking points from, you know, the people who serve the owners. But how does that affect Hollywood? How does that benefit Hollywood? How does it work? Well, they keep their jobs because, yes. you know, they have to they have to be useful or they don't get keep their jobs. You know, they have to serve the machine. They have to make sure the machine goes. That's the thing that generates all the money. Right. Right? And, well, you know, if you think about it. It's not like it, they're doing it for their health or for good, the good of humanity. They're getting paid. Right. And then they get weaponized and then they go after people who go against the narrative. The narrative is all. The narrative is all there is that we get anyway. And the people who invent the narrative, they're all evil. Every last one of them. There ain't a good one amongst them. But They're then, all like devils. How do you account for the smaller group of people who go against the narrative? Um, well, there aren't many of them, are there? They might no. twist it a little and say, well, there are some good. That's as far as they'll go. Well, there are some good people. That's as far as they'll go. But they won't ever name it. Naming it is dangerous. No, but what I'm saying is is there's been an, an, an ever-growing group who of people who are kind of waking up. For yeah. instance, if you would have talked to me five years ago and you would have said to me, CDC, Fauci, uh, CDC, R Rochelle Walensky, WHO, FBI, CIA. I'd go, yeah, well, those are organizations that are here to protect us. Mm -hmm. And if the WHO says wear masks, then I would put a mask on because, you know, they know what they're doing and they're looking out for us. Right. And uh, if you said CDC or Barbara Ferrer, she's a health commissioner for Los Angeles County. I'm like, well, she's a doctor. Yeah, Dr. Ferrer. All right, well, let her set policy. Who am I to 
interrupt that conversation. And obviously, whatever she's doing, she's thinking about the citizens of of L.A. And uh, Rochelle Walensky's thinking about the citizens of the United States. And the WHO's thinking about citizens, citizens of the world. Yeah. And the FBI's out there trying to root out evil. That's what everybody thinks. And the thinks. CIA's out there doing on an international scale. That's what all scale. the good and people think that I, way. That's the all I, that's all I that thought. Way. But then COVID came around yeah. and I was like, what's the FBI up to? And what's Fauci up to? And what's WHO up to? And what's CNN up to? And what's LA Times up to? So then I became suspicious. Right. And I now think of them in a very different way. But they're is a group of us who do think of them in a very different way. Dr. Drew was all yeah, on board he, he with went, Fauci and everyone else, but then he started looking at what's going on. He was one of the first people to say, wait a minute. Yes. The question is, is why aren't there more of those people? Because they, they just, got it all sewed up. They want their jobs. Yeah. They want to keep their jobs. Yeah, like, uh, you know. Well, there's so many people that are holding on for their retirement funds. And like I say, as soon as they figure out that their retirement funds got shipped to the Ukraine, they're going to be real pissed and they're going to really wake up. Did you, I know when this whole Valerie It's all mind control. You know, that's what I'm always talking about is how they control us. You know, they control us through the screens, our minds. Keep going. Tell me more. Well, that's what power does. It, it, you know, like Hitler said, you tell a lie enough times and people believe it. And of course, he wasn't the first one to do that. They've been doing that forever. Power lies to keep people in line and control them. Everything's a lie. Everything power tells us is a lie. You taking me to the zoo like you promised? Why, yes, if your mother does Oh, you two run along. We'll all have dinner together later. <laughs> oh, good. Uncle? Yes? Mommy told me about Daddy. Something she said to ask you. Why did he die? Well, Philippe, he died because of his work. He was like an like an explorer in a wild country where no one had ever been before. He was searching for the truth. He almost found a great truth. But for one instant, he was careless. That's what killed him? Search for the truth is the most important work in the whole world and the most dangerous. I'd like that. I'd like to be an explorer like him. Will you help me, Uncle Francois? Yes, Philippe. So, it always comes back to truth, doesn't it? When Roseanne Barr proclaimed that the narrative is all, it is all that there is, the people who invent the narrative are all evil, she was, of course, referring to the particular narrative being foisted upon the Western nations by their own governments. And the more we've learned since the COVID pandemic, the more people are awakening to the fact that these false narratives have been in circulation for longer than anyone would really like to contemplate. But not all narratives are false or evil. There are plenty of true narratives in circulation as well. But too many people have difficulty in distinguishing the true ones from the litany of lies. Which brings us back 
to our philosophical dilemma, a reconsideration of truth and its role in the affairs of humanity. In our comparison and contrast between truth and reality, a good place to start is with some working definitions. So let's begin with the word reality. My Funk and Wagnall's dictionary defines reality as, quote, the fact, state, or quality of being real or genuine, that which is real, an actual thing, situation, or event, the sum or totality of real things. And in philosophy, it is the absolute or ultimate, as contrasted with the apparent. End quote. But defining reality as that which is real demands a definition of the word real, which happened to be the two words that came up in dealing with my fly narrative. And the same dictionary defines real as, quote, having existence or actuality as a thing or state, not imaginary, a real event, not artificial or counterfeit, genuine, representing the true or actual as opposed to the apparent or ostensible, the real reason, unaffected, unpretentious, a real person, and in philosophy having actual existence. End quote. And the fact that Funken Wagnalls was forced to define reality in terms of the word real might explain why the Ayn Rand lexicon had no definition for the word reality. When I checked it out, under reality it read, See existence. So I did. And existence was defined as, quote, To exist is to be something, as distinguished from the nothing of non-existence. It is to be an entity of a specific nature made of specific attributes. Existence is identity. Consciousness is identification. If nothing exists, there can be no consciousness. A consciousness with nothing to be conscious of is a contradiction in terms. End quote. Then we come to the definition of truth, which the Ayn Rand lexicon defines as the recognition of reality. Reason, man's only means of knowledge, is his only standard of truth, and the truth or falsehood of all man's conclusions, inferences, thought, and knowledge rests on the truth or falsehood of his definitions, and that is so important definitions are all. And whenever you see someone changing definitions, you know you're dealing with a criminal or a liar. And there's another interesting observation that I had not noticed before. Quote, some facts are not necessary, but all truths are, end quote. And I was reminded of the Scottish philosopher John McMurray's warning that, of all things, knowledge for the sole sake of knowledge tends to be mischievous. The reason to acquire knowledge is ultimately to achieve some kind of purpose or objective. Knowledge may accurately reflect some aspect of reality, but may serve no purpose to human action, which tends to make the pursuit of truth a more significant objective. And as if to seal the reality of that truth, I was most persuaded by this definition of truth in the Funk and Wagnalls Dictionary, that beyond being, quote, faithful to facts or reality, truth is required by justice, end quote. Wow, that's almost the reason, that's almost the distinctive thing that makes the pursuit of truth a higher value than simply the pursuit of 
identifying reality itself. And doesn't that explain why, for those committed to injustice, the truth is the thing that they fear the most? Now this is why I suggested earlier that for humans to survive, knowing what is true is more important than knowing what is real. I see truth as being more about purpose and morality and meaning, which in turn relate to human action. Simple knowledge of the real is not always useful, especially if that knowledge is something that could or should never be acted upon, which is essentially what John McMurray was getting at with his observation that knowledge for the sole sake of knowledge tends to be mischievous. And we're sure seeing that principle in action with the political insistence that we should all follow the science, aren't we? And of course, they're only talking about political science, not real science. And that's just another way of saying, don't follow the truth. And given that truth is the requirement of determining justice, we can see this as a clear recognition of the fact that human beings, unlike other known entities in the universe, do in fact possess free will. And that is not only true, it is real. And there you have your reconciliation. Now those of you who may be new to our show, Just Right, should be aware that although we might talk about everything from common houseflies to politics and the nature of existence, the primary focus of this show is a specific branch of philosophy known as epistemology. Epistemology is defined as a science devoted to the discovery of the proper methods of acquiring and validating knowledge. It's not about what to think, but about how to think. And as explained in the Ayn Rand lexicon, quote, In the history of philosophy, with some very rare exceptions, epistemological theories have consisted of attempts to escape one or the other of two fundamental questions which cannot be escaped. Men have been taught either that knowledge is impossible, skepticism, or that it is available without effort, mysticism. These two positions appear to be antagonists, but are, in fact, two variants on the same theme, two sides of the same fraudulent coin. The attempt to escape the responsibility of rational cognition and the absolutism of reality. The attempt to assert the primacy of consciousness over the primacy of existence. End quote. And by the way, therein lies the fundamental divide between the political left and the political right. The left operates on the primacy of consciousness, which was basically represented by Plato, while the right operates on the primacy of existence, as represented by Aristotle. Now, every one of our shows opens with our statement that we're not right-wing, but just right, meaning that our goal is to discover the truth about all matters, and that one of our fundamental premises is that there is no such thing as a political quote-unquote spectrum. There are only two political polarities, and we call them left and right. It's either freedom, democracy, and the rule of law, or enslavement. There is no such thing in between. There is no such thing as a little freedom, a little democracy, a little rule of law, just as there is no such thing as a little enslavement. So that's, that's the choice. It comes down 
to it's either the globalitarian misanthropists or the people. It comes down to it's either us or them. And that's, I think, what this really is all about. Now, when my colleagues and I were elected to this parliament, there was no question about it. We were on the side of the people because the people actually pay us to act in their best interest. That's our job. If you do not unequivocally stand with the people, you have no place in any parliament or in any government. The left represents a condition of tyranny in all of its forms from communism to fascism, while the right represents the condition of freedom and capitalism and the concept of individual rights which makes freedom a reality. Glaringly absent from the traditional political spectrums that have been taught are, of course, freedom and capitalism. The so-called political spectrum that most people have been taught has communism represented on the left and fascism on the right. But both in theory and in practice, fascism sits on the left. So what's missing? Freedom. This has caused untold confusion in the minds of millions and perhaps has played a greater role than most would expect in accelerating the tragic drift of nations to the left, towards communism and fascism and all other forms of collectivism. Because the right represents freedom, which is a natural condition in comparison to the unlimited number of freedom-restricting ideologies, the political right is almost not political at all. In fact, the political right would be best described generically, not in the muddled leftist terms of political confusion and misdirection. For example, a simple dictionary definition, here again from Funk and Wagnalls, the right is defined as done in accordance with or conformable to moral law or to some standard of rightness, equitable, just, righteous, conformable to truth or fact. And there are those words again. Conformable to a standard of propriety or to the conditions of the case, proper, fit, suitable, holding one direction as a line, straight, direct, properly placed, disposed or adjusted, well-regulated, orderly, sound in mind and body, healthy and well, end quote. And as there are no corresponding generic definitions of left in standard dictionaries, a simple way to objectively describe the political left would be to use the exact opposite of the six quote-unquote right principles just described. In other words, done in contradiction to moral law or some standard of rightness, unconformable to truth or fact, you know, and on and on it goes. The idea that words, which represent concepts about the real world, can be subjectively and variably interpreted, is not only false, but exceedingly dangerous. It is a root cause of much of the strife in the world today. Among the words most misunderstood in the political lexicon are those used most often. Left, right, conservative, liberal, communism, fascism, capitalism, socialism, to name but a few. Having never clearly defined these words since they were first used, there has been a massive failure in the ability to identify political ideologies and their consequences when put into action. 
The political identity crisis has now expanded into all fields of human discourse, including even sexuality, where it has now become politically acceptable to deny one's sexual identity and to declare it to be something that it is not. Words improperly used and applied lead to a disconnect from reality and can fuel everything from political conflict to mental disorders to social dysfunction. In politics, this flight from reality emanates from the left side of the political polarity, whose adherents operate on a philosophical concept called the primacy of consciousness. And in contrast, and properly defined, the right side of the political polarity, not the right wing, operates on the philosophical premise of the primacy of existence. Now, most people of goodwill would think it a simple matter just to get people to agree to certain definitions and then allow the various perspectives on issues to be debated in an environment of mutually understood terms and meanings, irrespective of differences of opinion. Unfortunately, the reality is that the left wants no part of such a process. Leftists want to flood the world with false concepts concepts that either have no connection to reality or to the context in which those concepts objectively apply. And that leaves those on the right side of a given conflict or debate charged with the responsibility of never allowing the forced political identity crisis to overwhelm them. Because if that happens, there will be no one left to do what is just right and the world will continue to drift leftward as it has been doing as long as I've been in politics and that's been most of my life. Now regrettably, we've only scratched the surface of the many epistemological issues that could be expanded upon with regard to today's discussion. But our time is limited and we've now reached that point in our show where, yeah, you guessed it, we've got to fly. <laughs> so be sure that you fly back. And join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and fly right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Bro, do you see this fly flying into me? This goddamn ISIS mosquito? That's my level of pale, isn't that crazy? Like, there are lights that the fly should fly into. I'm so pale, the fly thinks I'm the source of light. Like, the fly like, Is it really? Yeah,